Welcome to the Runs From Podcast, episode 95. Hello, Rob Jones. Good afternoon. Looks like you're still in the gym. I am still in the gym, just grafting. Graft. We still record on Zoom. I think someone asked me the other day, and I'm like, yep, we never went back to how it was before. No, but we're clearly, we make it flow so well that nobody even knows the difference. No one knows the difference, and I only know where you are, judging by your background. (laughs) <laughs> by the wall what, the what wall. wall am i on yeah the the office wall for sure. you're a creature of habit so you're always in the same location yeah i even timed how fast it takes me to set myself up today in mm-hmm. terms of like microphone plug in headphones plug in send you the invite link 47 seconds 47 in this is very bizarre the, the fact that you said 47 i was uh i was helping a client with decision fatigue Last week it was, I and I timed, I timed how long it took me to make the breakfast that I make every day, whether I have it for breakfast or I take it in for lunch, whatever it is, and it was exactly 47 seconds. Wait, you just said you make a breakfast that you eat at lunch. I know. So if I, let's say, I make it every day, no matter what happens. So if I use it for breakfast, fantastic. And if I use it for a different meal, it, it's always there. But it just removes that decision of, of one meal. And so I was telling a client about this and I said, look, you have 47 seconds to make this meal. There's no excuses for picking up that shite food from the petrol station or the shops or the chocolate or the crisps or whatever it is. It's not helping you with your goals. What? Anyway, Mate, that is golden. Absolutely golden. Our our listeners, if you do any, you turn the podcast off right now and just go (laughs) think about that, please. (laughs) feel like we should have a moment of silence for how golden that sentence was <laughs> and it's right at the start as well this is not like our usual uh fluffing chat at the start of a podcast no although we need to do a bit of that we had a endurance camp last weekend just we gone we did so i actually did my my go-to 47 second breakfast is currently still in the hotel fridge <laughs> oh. the old 47 days how long will it last breakfast i don't even know if they'll have picked it up so I need to get myself a new glass bowl to uh, to make my breakfast. Brilliant. Well, at least the cleaner's got breakfast. Very good breakfast as well. It's got every single macronutrient they could need or want. Brilliant. Anyway, I know the question is next week's going to be what is your forty-seven second breakfast, and we're not going to tell people, so they tune in next week. Yes. Yeah. Marketing one hundred and one. Get people to guess. Um, mate, favorite moment of the camp um saturday we raced from the border of a man back to the car five of us and it was fantastic fun it was like being 12 years old and just racing your mates as fast as humanly possible again downhill that's pretty cool (laughs) that's pretty cool on the first day i started at the back i was a bike sweeper and so i got to ride through everyone if you like so yeah. I saw like all the cyclists and all the runners making their way up the hill. And I was like, this is so cool. And what someone else was there who's not part of our team, but they were like, did enough like by the mountain this weekend? I was like, <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> we yes. had like every kilometer covered at one point. Yeah. Do you know what was really cool? I'd say on the Saturday when we were on the trail section and at the very, at the top of the trail section on Jebel Diaz, you can look down and see almost all the way to the bottom you can see most of all the uh, the switchbacks and it was cool to see there were cyclists on there uh doing their cycling obviously and there was obviously. guys that were doing their brick sessions so there's people running and then there's obviously all of us guys on the trail as well and it was just it was really cool you just knew that everyone there was was part of our team yeah i love it very cool uh side note if you go to jebel jace pick your litter up it's disgusting how much litter is on that mountain. Mm-hmm. It's probably not our listeners, to be honest, but we should do a litter pick there. It would take a while, I think. It's, in, it's bit, yeah, the car parks are horrific. It would. But... In between the car parks are fine, but it's the sections where people sleep and just stay at the side of the road. I just think, what are people doing? I know. And there's bins right. everywhere. Everywhere, mate. And goats. And goats eat everything. Did you see? <laughs> did you see the sign? This is going slightly off topic. It says, "Do not leave your pets on Jebel Jace." Have you seen that sign? No. So there's a big sign saying, "If you leave your pets, you're going to be fined ten thousand dirhams, which is like two thousand pounds." But the, <laughs> the pictures that they've used for pets 
One is a, a cat, which is, you know, people have Standard. cats as pets. Yeah. One is a goat. Yeah. You know, okay, maybe some people have pet goats. One yeah. is a camel. Camille. Who is taking a pet camel up to the top of a mountain and leaving it? Someone, otherwise they wouldn't have written the sign. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'd love we, to... we didn't have a sign up for this, so. I'd love to see Our a stray fault. camel. Love to see a stray cavil on Jevil Juice. <laughs> that would be good. That would be anyway. Good. Uh, okay, we've swiftly digressed. I have to pull ourselves back on track. Uh, today <clears throat> is one of our precision hydration shows. We have on a guest who goes by the name of Abby Coleman, and she is Precision Hydration's resident sports scientist. And she has a uh, bachelor's degree in sport and exercise science precision nutrition certificate and a level three diploma in sports massage therapy, which probably doesn't use that much working for a nutrition company, but always good to have. Um, Abby, I have spoke to a few times before. She's helped me out with a little bit of stuff um, to do with precision hydration. And we chatted a while ago and said, we definitely have to get you on the podcast to cover a few topics, which she definitely did. Um, we we talk about, uh, well, the the age old um, debate of how much carbohydrates should runners take. Mm -hmm. Uh, we talk about training your gut and we talk about how to sort of prepare your gut a little bit better to be able to take on sports nutrition. And I think it's, it's a very interesting and informative, um, podcast. We, we kind of warned you last week that you will need your pen and paper out and be ready to listen maybe a few times. I don't think it was that bad. Like the conversation yeah. flowed quite well. We we used quite, you know, nothing too crazy in terms of the language and the terms. Um, but I still think this is a good one to listen to with a with a pad and paper, more just to identify what you're maybe what you're currently doing and picking up some tips on what you could be doing maybe a bit better or what you might want to try, experiment with. Um, I know we we both talk about it, Rob, what things that you know we've done in the past that didn't work. Um, that we're trying different things with and and that all kind of flowed quite nicely into Abby's experience of working with with athletes as well mm -hmm. it's good from it was, it was good as well to hear it from a sports scientist as opposed to a coach on her views on how people fuel and the mistakes that they make and just kind of cemented it that it's not just our athletes it's a a, a common problem let's say one of the most common one of the most common good mate do you want to push your Jordan Ultra X code again? Is it still open? It is still open. Just email me. I'm not going to share it share it live because I think there's only six weeks to go till the race. So if people just start signing up willy-nilly and they're not prepared, that would be doing uh, a very big disservice to our integrity. Well so said. If, if you well want said. to come to Jordan to run 250 kilometers across Wadi Rum, send me an email. And if you don't know what that means, listen to last week's show, episode 94, and you can find out. Yep. That segues on, because you know how good I am at segues, into actually how it's going to be a hot ultra for you guys. And that is where Precision Hydration can come in and help you out. Nailed it. <laughs> Precision Hydration have what I love, one of, the, one of the best hydration products out there on the market, which is their 1500 milligram of sodium uh, packets. So it's yeah. called their, I should know the name properly, but it's called their, their 1500 or 1500 on the, that's on what, the packet. That's all it's called. That's all it's called, isn't it? Yeah. And that means that it has 1500 milligrams of sodium in it and you whack it in a, a 500, 750 or one liter bottle. And it pretty much is going to cover you in terms of sodium losses for definitely an hour. If you're a heavy sodium sweater, then you might need to do another one afterwards that, with that. But I also use them to preload um, my sodium, especially now running back here in the heat, sweating a lot. Um, and I know that if I take on one of these 1500, um, packets, I'm pretty much covered for before and during my run. And then I need another one afterwards to, to get my electrolyte baseline back up to where it should be. Mm -hmm. They are, I think my favorite product from them. Have you got a favorite mate? You ordered a lot uh, of the 1000s. I, yeah, so I've used the 1500s quite a lot and I find it just that little bit after a really heavy session, I love them. But most of the time I'm going to use 1000. I don't need quite as much. Mm. So I went How have you figured of, that out? Uh, trial and error. 
Ah, fair enough, fair enough. And and actually, because through taste buds. Ah, uh, yeah, tastes too salty for you. It tastes too salty, which means I know it's just that little bit too much. Too much, and you can go back and listen to the show with Andy Blow, who is the founder of Precision Hydration, episode 71, to understand what we mean by that. But yeah, it doesn't taste salty to me. So maybe uh, I need a 2000. Did double up. And Stunt. interesting, actually, I looked at this this morning. If you use a very well-known brand, well, actually, we can name it ORS. Hmm. So I had a look this morning. ORS tablets are 230 milligrams for two tablets. So for every tablet, Ooh. I think you're looking at 115 milligrams. So it's 10 times stronger. While we're naming companies, I was using Noon before Precision Hydration, and they are 300 milligrams. 300 milligrams. One tablet. So you'd need three more. You'd need five tablets to replicate yeah. the amount of sodium. Yeah. So there you go. And if you do want to uh, have a look at what you might need in terms of your sweat rate and also sodium loss, you can go on to... Uh, Precision Hydration's website and go take their free online sweat test. There's also a link to this in the show notes. And then you can book a free 20 minute hydration consultation to go through what your results mean and what you might need to get from them. And they also now do fueling, which I used. That's all I used in uh, Ironman Estonia was their carbohydrate drink and their gels. The gels are really handy because they're 30 grams of carbohydrate. So you only need two an hour. Um, possibly now after this podcast, I could go to three, but I didn't want to risk, you know, needing the, the toilet too much, having not done it before. Um, and you can go online as well to their website and go to the quick carb calculator. And that will help you figure out how much carbohydrates you roughly will need for your event that you've got coming up. And again, if you want to do a free 20 minute hydration, uh, sorry, fueling strategy, consultation you can as well and you might be lucky enough to get abby on that because she is one of the team that takes your calls when you have consultation questions mm. interesting stuff interesting as well their gels they say are flavor neutral so they don't taste of anything but they do taste of something but i couldn't tell you what so well, because you don't want to share because you want people to buy them or no, because i don't know you don't like, know what it is i taste with colors so I, I can't taste sweet things. It just either tastes sweet or it doesn't to me. So if you give me like, uh, if you give me something sweet and it's green, I'll probably tell you it tastes like kiwi, but it might be strawberry. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. So when everyone's like, oh, that before. That's this tastes you. horrible. I'm like, tastes the same to me. You know what? Everyone used to go after like a certain color of sweets. That's right. Yeah. I didn't care because it all tasted the same. Interesting. Yeah interesting so yeah their gels if you know what their gels taste like because they say they're flavor neutral let me know because i have no idea i just ordered the uh the powder version the the 30 yes. grams of powder and i've not tried it yet so i will i'll try it this week and then i'll let people know next week it's also if, flavor neutral yes so i'll actually i'll try it when i get well no i don't need to have it when i get home i'll try it tomorrow before track and i'll let you know what it tastes like there you go if all this sounds good to you and you get onto their website and you want to make a purchase then you can use the code run strong 15 to get 15 percent off your first order run strong 15 all one word no spaces uh, if you write it in capitals it means that you're shouting it and they will send it faster so we will move on to our interview now with abby <laughs> that may or may not be true but <laughs> Oh, he's lost it. <laughs> that was really funny. Get to the interview quick. <laughs> Here is your interview with sports scientist from Precision Hydration, Abby Coleman. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always feel like the host of a dating show when I when we do these guest shows. I'm like, what's your name? Where do you come from? Welcome to the show. Um, Abby Coleman, I'm, I'm talking to you from Leicestershire uh, in the UK. So quite a long way from you guys today. Raining? Dry, but no. grey. Grey. And we're in the summer, so it's weak, incredibly weak. 
Um, well, I've got no, I've got nothing to say about Leicestershire. Rob, anything? I've not even got an insult, to be honest. Uh, nope. I don't know anything about Leicestershire. <laughs> it's pretty unremarkable, if I'm honest. It is, it is. If I've got nothing to say about a place in the UK, then it can't be up to much. I think you won something at football a few years ago. Maybe yeah, did that. that was yeah. pretty huge, Leicester. True, true. Abby, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do? Who do you work for? I'm sure the listeners of the show have worked that out by now, but what do you do for Precision Hydration? Uh, I'm the sports scientist at Precision Hydration, which encompasses a, a wide range of things. I always struggle to describe my job to people. Uh, predominantly, we do sweat testing, which then opens a big old can of worms as to what that is, why do you do that. Um, but we measure the salt losses in, in athletes' sweat and we individualise hydration strategies for them based on their sodium and fluid losses. That's kind of the fundamental you know, element of my job. But recently we've stepped into fueling, um, release some energy products. So now, whereas previously it was solely hydration, it's also, yeah, uh, fuel and hydration. So doing a lot of work on carbohydrates and um, talking to a lot of athletes now, we started collecting race intakes from them um, you know, critiquing or feeding back on on their fueling and the hydration um, post big races, um, offering some advice, some recommendations, and then you know, repeating the process, which is yeah, a new element of my job, but one that I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying. Absolutely love your guys' newsletter when you detail um, you know races and what people had within them and. And how many, you know, grams of sodium they had per hour, how many carbohydrates, uh, fluid intake. I think it's so interesting. And, and you are, I only have about five newsletters that I'm subscribed to in my emails. And you are probably two out of those five that I actually read the whole thing and enjoy it. That is so good to hear. That's so good to hear. A lot of effort goes into those newsletters. And um, so feedback on them is always really nice to hear. And like, you know, those numbers it all kind of came around very organically in that we were realizing that you couldn't find that information elsewhere on Google. You couldn't find, you might see, you know, the odd comment from athletes saying what they'd taken and particularly when something had gone wrong for an athlete, they might start discussing their nutrition or maybe blame their hydration, but actually what they were doing and the quantities that they were taking, that's never discussed. Um, so we sort of did it once, got a great reaction and now it's become a, you know, a common um, mm. I think Tom you shared the one with me I think it was looking at a 24 was it a 24 hour cyclist and a 24 hour runner and just yeah. how much they fueled with for yeah. those events when most people think oh because your your intensity is quite low you wouldn't be consuming that much carbohydrate but really the, the opposite was true absolutely yeah I know the one you're talking about that was one of the early ones um, and the runner was actually Alexander uh, Sorokin um, breaking the record uh, the 24-hour record. That was it. Um, yeah, crazy numbers. Because like you say, we all have kind of an appreciation that when you're going for longer, the intensity is lower. Therefore, you can actually dial back a little bit on the carbohydrates, you know, introduce a bit more fat, a bit more protein, perhaps some more real foods. But actually, when you look at the numbers, it's still incredibly high carb. Um, I think Alexander was, you know, hitting the 70 80 grams of carb per hour consistently um which is is hefty numbers um that's high the, uh, interesting i'm reading um i don't know why i can't tell you but i'm reading matthew pinson's book at the moment you know the rower the olympic rower yeah. very old it's old school but i just wanted to read it anyway he talks about rowing being a basically a game of, of who can tolerate the most pain over six minutes he's like whoever can tolerate the highest amount of pain will win and i think with ultra running it's slowly becoming not about who can tolerate pain but who can actually fuel the most and consistently over the time frame that they're running for and then obviously the longer it goes the more that matters would you agree with that i would agree with that and i actually i can't remember who i saw the quote was from but an ultra runner had said that an ultra race is an eating competition more so than a running competition and I think what you just said there Tom is you know absolutely the same thing um it's who can 
keep eating consistently once that drops off once you know you're suffering from gi issues nausea you know even worse vomiting or diarrhea it's pretty much game over um because you're out for such a long time and fuel is so important you, you can't you can't really compete without it yeah rob you've you've got a lot of experience running ultras um talk us through some of your experiences with fueling them and sort of where you went to for your resources in order to know how to fuel them i've gone well i've gone both ways haven't i i've completely underfueled events and i've completely overfueled events and had the, <laughs> the catastrophic uh catastrophic results at both ends so for me it was i never even i I should have really gone and sought advice sooner um but i went by trial and error and it took a very very long time and i think what would have helped is to speak to someone and to get someone to help me calculate how much i literally needed to fuel for those events with the intensity that i was running generally what i did was i underfueled which is i think a mistake that most people make um just not calculating the carbohydrates in the fuel that i was taking how long i'd be running what intensity what pace and for how many hours because when you normally when you total it all up you think bloody hell it actually weighs quite a lot but then you don't take into account aid stations drop bags that sort of thing so really i think it's well most people underfuel, don't they? And I've definitely been that person. Mm. Yeah, I would say underfueling is is the more common scenario because it, it's a safer option, right? Mm. Uh, you know, everyone is quite fearful of having GI distress, which is is certainly common if you take too much, but can be easily avoided if people train and practice with that nutrition in advance of the race. And that's not saying you need to do it all the time. But, you know, between four and eight weeks ahead of race day, start thinking about what you might need on race day and start introducing it into even just a session or two a week and slowly increasing, you know, that headline hourly carb number. So if, if you know that you know, 40 grams of carb per hour is, is fine for you at the moment, that's tolerate, you can tolerate that, increase that week on week. Uh, you know, by another 10 grams up until you meet that number, that, you know, that optimal hourly uh, carb intake number. And obviously that requires knowing what that number is. And that's perhaps where reaching out to someone um, could be helpful. How, um, how much do you think we, we actually know now, Abby, about how to fuel exercise? Because like, I was watching something the other day again, old school but was watching it um and it was to do with alberto uh, salazar who was the nike oregon um project coach and we won't go into him as a coach but as a as an athlete he used to refuse water on race courses because he didn't want it to weigh him down so yeah. he was running these things with no fuel and not even water and that was back in the 80s and obviously we're you know we're 30 years on now a little bit more um do you think we're sorted we know exactly what works and it's just about people sticking to it or is there still people out there claiming that this is the way to do it and that way that they're saying in the you know in the everyday news is wrong i think it's a mix i think we've been on a right old journey on both the hydration and the nutrition side and there's been a lot of changing of opinions and changing of advice in the last two three four decades um, on the hydration side of things in the early 80s and before that like you said Tom people didn't think you needed to drink at all and in in fact athletes had this mindset and viewpoint that to drink was a sign of weakness you know it wasn't it was mentally strong if you could get through a marathon without taking a drink and that was very much the advice Um, there's a there's a quote from an advisor to Tommy Simpson who was a a world champion on the bike many, many years ago, telling him, don't drink, uh, particularly in hot conditions, don't drink, um, which is just, you know, baffling now that that was ever said. Um, but then fast forward to the 80s and sports drinks started to become, you know, wide, widely available. And the advice did a, a complete 180 and where it had gone from don't drink at all, you know, nil by mouth, it was now drink, drink, drink dehydration is the worst thing that could happen you need to replace all your fluid losses don't let yourself get dehydrated 
And that was very damaging um, because people overdrank and we saw a spike in cases of hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium levels, essentially people just excessively diluting their blood sodium um, by too much water. And then that was recognized as problematic and probably the not the right thing to be telling people. And so they dialed it back and said, oh, well, just drink to thirst then. You know, just drink plain water to thirst. That's all you need to do. And in some, some cases, I completely agree with that. I think that's a fine approach. And certainly it, it's good advice to avoid hyponatremia. But my role, I work with elite and professional athletes who want to optimize performance. They want to go and compete. They want to do the best that they can. And in every scenario, is just drinking to thirst the best way to achieve that? No, is the short answer, because we know that everyone sweats vastly differently and vastly different amounts of sodium. And therefore, um, just listening to thirst, which can often go quite haywire, particularly in long ultra events um, or very hot events, um, you need some kind of, you need an element of a plan, some kind of basis to fall back on, but then on race day, listen to your body experience and be able to work on the fly based on what's actually happening um, at that moment in time. So I think we've come, yeah, a full turn on the hydration side and similar with the nutrition, um, probably better history with the nutrition. They did know back in the 1920s, as papers that showed that marathon runners, if they were taking hard boiled sweets, their blood glucose levels didn't drop as significantly at the end of the race and they weren't hitting the wall and that was something that all marathon runners knew about this hitting of the wall at like mile 18 mile 20 but they just accepted that that was part of running a marathon you're gonna hit it even though there was papers out there that showed if you took some sweets um, your blood glucose didn't drop off um, but no one really put it together until the sort of the 1960s 1970s um, and some Swedish um, researchers were actually responsible for this. Um, I forget the name of the, the I forget the name of them, but they called it the dark. This they named it after themselves, as all researchers did back then. Um, this diet, and they looked at carb loading, basically pre-exercise and feeding them during. Um, and there was a it was an English marathon runner that was the first to adopt it. I think it might have been was it Ron Hill. Um, recently passed away he adopted <laughs> the idea of carb loading for the first time he went out and ran the Athens marathon in the Olympics and he I don't think he won in the end I think he came second but he made headlines because he was third and third by a long way and caught second and everyone was blown away that he hadn't hit this wall this wall that everyone hits, why hadn't his performance dropped off? And it's because he'd carb loaded, he took some carbs during, and that then became, um, you know, he became notorious for um, this diet that he'd followed, this Swedish diet that no one had paid any attention to. Um, and probably from there, that was the turning point of people recognising that, right, okay, eat some pasta before your marathon and and maybe having something during is beneficial. Um, as for like how much people should be taking during, that didn't come until you know nearly the, the early 2000s, um, where a lot was learned very quickly. Um, that's really where all the research that we rely on now came from. Um, we're still learning, definitely. There's this question of the how much question, I'd say is, is one that's still evolving. Um, how much can people tolerate in the early 2000s it was it was 60 grams everyone thought that was a ceiling then it quickly a couple of years later was shown that actually 90 grams was possible and now we're having athletes come out and and completely validly are tolerating over 100 grams um, you know Elliot Kipchoge in his breaking two attempts reported taking more than 100 grams of carb per hour and that was probably the first widespread, um, you know, the big news story of someone doing it and not having um, horrible GI problems that everyone assumed you would if you tried to do that mm. intake of carb. 
just to go in a little bit deeper on that, some some people may just switch off here and say this is too much for me, but some of those products that are allowing people to get in, say, 100 grams of carbs per hour, they're, they're sort of creating a bolus in the stomach. Is that correct? And then it's sort of drip feeding, if you like, a lot, lot slower rate than, say, some like just taking in 100 grams of like glucose, straight up glucose, um, because they're managing to mix the, the chains of sugars and being able to make them yeah, sort of more yeah, slowly similar. release um, it's able to happen. Yeah, um, the, bol the bolus that you mentioned, Tom, I think you're touching upon something called hydrogels, which is a little bit of a, um, the research is pretty weak on them, actually. Um, what I want you to say, keep talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, you've got the right idea. The, the whole marketing concept of them is they drip feed a, a, a more gradual rate into the bloodstream and provide um, glucose. Um, or sugar, you know, glucose and fructose. Um, the, when you dive into the research on them, you know, do they actually equate to improved performance? No, there's been no papers that show that they increase performance. So whilst in theory, they might have a, a small effect on the emptying of um, the gastric, of gastric emptying or intestinal absorption, they don't actually equate, well, we're yet to see into improved performance. Um, the big one on if you're trying to achieve those higher numbers is the mix of carbohydrate that you're taking. Absolutely. Um, you have different transporters in the gut, in the intestines, and you have a, a transporter for glucose, you have a transporter for fructose and each other sugar. The transporter for glucose gets saturated around 60 to 70 grams of carb per hour. And that's standard for almost anyone. It uh, doesn't matter if you're male, female, or what size you are, 60 to 70 grams of glucose will saturate those transporters. And that's like the basis of, of an athlete's fueling. You, may, you want to make sure you are saturating those transporters. Then to increase that number to these, this 90, 100, 120 that we've seen, that comes from another source of sugar, and it's often fructose, because fructose, well, slower... Um, absorbed than glucose is probably the next best um, the next best thing and it uses a different transporter um, so it's not competing with glucose um, it just it goes in a different door mm. now for a long time everyone thought the ceiling for fructose absorption was 30 grams and that's where that 90 grams came from that two to one ratio that everyone's quite familiar with now with this, these high numbers coming out, people are scratching their heads and saying, well, how is that possible? Um, can people tolerate more glucose? Can people tolerate more fructose? And the finger is definitely pointing towards it being fructose. And that idea of this two to one ratio being optimal, actually, it doesn't appear there is an optimal ratio at all. As long as you're saturating those glucose transporters, you can take as much fructose on top of that as is tolerable to you. You know, you need to be able to tolerate it, but it appears that some people can tolerate, you know, 30, 40, 50 grams of, of fructose. But it is definitely comes back to that training of the gut, that nutritional training and making sure that you stress the gut with it so that it can it can manage it. You won't be able to manage it right off the bat. Don't go and the worst thing people could do off, off the back of this chat is go and just smash carbohydrates in a race. That's if there's one take home message from this, just build it up slowly, practice, practice, practice. Rob's ordering precision fuel as we speak. I've got the <laughs> website up. I can see it. I can see it. So on that then, if let's say I'm, you know, I'm Joe Bloggs and I, I have my five sessions or four sessions a week of in, endurance training, some of it's long runs, there's some speed work in there, there's some tempo. How do I even begin to decide when I'm going to start to fuel a session or what should I start to fuel with? Do I go real food? Do I go gels? I've heard that gels are hard on the stomach, but I prefer to, you know, how do you even begin? Yeah, I know it's a big question, Robin. It is individual for sure. And that's what makes this, these chats not difficult, but long-winded because, mm -hmm. and that's probably why, you know, precision hydration 
we are unique in the sense that we encourage people to sit down with us on a one-on-one -on -one basis and we chat through their circumstances. So there's lots of things that I'd want to know about you to be able to answer that question correctly. Um, kind of the, the, the basics, I would, you'd want to be choosing a session that is most applicable to race day, you know, similar intensity, similar conditions. And when I say conditions, I mainly mean environmental conditions. If it's gonna be a hot race, you need to trial your nutrition in some hot sessions. And same with intensity. There's no point trialing your nutrition on your steady one hour run, because on race day, when you're pushing race pace for three hours, things are entirely different. Um, you're burning through that, full, that fuel far faster. Um, so yeah, race, try and match race intensity and race conditions. Um, start at what is a known tolerable intake for you. If you have no idea, I've never taken fueling before on my runs, start really low. And I would, you know, I'd go like one gel per hour, something really easy. And then you do need to be looking at the numbers a little bit. You need to know how much carbohydrate is in that and then look to increase that by, I would say 10 grams, you know, the following week. And, and if that's tolerable, then you increase it again. Um, in terms of the type of fueling that you're using, really personal preference. There's studies out there that have looked at what's better, an energy drink, a gel, or an energy bar, all equivalent. Carbohydrate oxidation rate is the same across the board. There seems to be minimal difference. So that's great news for athletes because you can just choose whatever is preferable to you. Some people love an energy drink and hate gels. And some people are the complete opposite, love gels, hate an energy drink. But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things as long as it works for you. Perfect. Would you get would you get beginners then to even bother looking at their glucose fructose? Or would you just say just start fueling, keep a log and figure it out afterwards? Um, yeah, I would say in the early stages, don't bother looking at it too closely. Once you start progressing along beyond that 60 grams of carb per hour, you do need to be introducing a mixture, um, mm -hmm. else that will go south pretty quickly. Um, but up until that point, you could you could be using you know any product largely, um, and there's a you'd be surprised how many products out there are that two to one um, ratio now. Anyway, um, it's pretty standard across the board to use a mix of sugars. Um, you do find some gels and things out there that are fructose free. And that's because there are, a, seems to be a margin of people that are very sensitive to fructose. Um, it's one of those foods, I don't know if you've heard of like the FODMAP diet. Um, there's certain sugars and certain fruits that people are, I mean, lactose is one, milk sugar, people are very sensitive to them. Um, so people will try to eliminate them from their diet and fructose falls under that category. Um, but largely most things will, will include a mix and it doesn't need to be paid an awful, not as much attention to as people perhaps think. That Lovely, leads nicely you. into my next question. You're dealing with a lot of elite athletes and pro athletes, as you said. Is there anywhere that you find changing your diet outside of exercise can impact how you consume or what you consume during exercise? I would say yes. Um, if an athlete wants to consume a high amount of carbohydrates on race day, it's definitely beneficial for them to regularly consume carbohydrates in their day-to-day -day diet um, rather than consume a high-fat, low-carb diet. Because, it, again, it just comes down to this stressing of the gut. You know, if, you're, if you regularly eat carbohydrates day-to-day, you're regularly providing the gut with the thing that you want to then ask it to process in high volumes. Um, so it's just another element of, of the training. Um, that's a whole can of worms though, to open that question of should I be eating, should I be following a high carb or high fat diet? But if someone wants to utilize carbs on race day, I would encourage them to eat carbs in their diet. I really wanted to ask you a question on the keto diet. 
<laughs> I wondered when the word ketones was going to be born. <laughs> now, what I wanted to know is, do you or have you worked with athletes in the past that perhaps, you know, it's, it's huge in the ultra world at the minute. The people like Zach Bitter have coined it because in their off season, they go, you know, high fat, low carb, um, to try and utilize those stores, right? And then, but what they don't necessarily tell people that give enough information on is whenever they're prepping for races or they're going to high intensity blocks, they introduce carbs back in. So is there anybody or is there any, if you like, what's your thoughts on it? What's your advice, views? I would agree with what you just said, Rob, um, in that they will introduce carbohydrates back in, in high intensity blocks, races. And that's perhaps what flies under the radar when people talk about this. Um, there's a great paper out there that looked at three elite or professional um, ultra runners and did their nutritional intake um, for three hundred uh, kilometer races, and all of them were following a ridiculously high carbohydrate diet. Yes, there was some elements of fat and protein in there, um, but they were smashing the carbs. Um, yes, during off season. I can understand why people might follow a high fat diet, but when you want to compete, when you want to perform, carbs are optimal. Um, carbs are king. Um, I think people. And everyone loves a potato, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't mash potato? Who doesn't love mashed potato? Shit. Um, is there any other ways of gut training without uh obviously the obvious one of of training yourself to eat more carbohydrates any other things like you know taking any supplements or your hydration status things like that that you've you found um not so much supplements the hydration is definitely can also be a factor in that it doesn't have to just be the fuel that can gut train um if you often compete somewhere hot and you're conscious that you might need to or you'll want to be drinking a greater volume of fluid um you you can introduce um or it's worth introducing greater volumes into your training leading up to it again to get it accustomed to those greater volumes um, so you don't experience any sloshing any bloating during during race day um it's definitely can be food and fuel uh, food and fluids um, that play an element there um, you might consider taking a bolus of fluid before a session, you know, mix up half a litre of fluid in the hour or two before exercise. Um, this is something that we encourage athletes to do anyway. We would encourage them to add quite a high sodium tablet to that, and we call that preloading. Um, so it's starting well hydrated, essentially. Um, but again, it kind of primes the stomach to absorbing uh, more volume. So absolutely, yeah, it doesn't need to just be the food. Um, one more question for me, and it's more of a one that's sort of more practical for people. Um, let's say, I know obviously you work for a nutrition company, but we've done enough plugging for you um, and we know that your products work. Let's say average Joe, he's forgotten to do his nutrition order from, from precision hydration or it's not arrived in time, let's say, although your postage is next level. I've got to say that. Even out here, I get it like two days after I order it. But um they're going out for a ride or a run and all they can get into is like a corner shop and they need to get something to fuel their exercise. And they're thinking, oh my God, the shop doesn't sell any gels. It doesn't sell any of the bars that I've heard Abby talking about. Absolutely nothing. What are some go-to foods that people can use while exercising? Easy. Haribo, Jelly Babies, like simple sugars. Um, what you want to avoid is anything too high fat, too high fiber, and too high protein. Those three things, they slow absorption in the gut. It's yeah. just simple, just sugar. Um, it's one of the things I get a lot is people think they're fueling sessions with protein bars. I'm like, no, it does not work like that. <laughs> but they buy all these fancy bars. And yeah, or, or the other one I hear is, I ran out of product and I, I couldn't get my hands on anything before the before the weekend. So I didn't know how to fuel it. And I'm like, ah, it's one of the most basic things we can go for. Um, but this, Rob, is, this is one of the problems, isn't it, with the marketing we're out there is 
people think when they're doing sport they need sports products and all you need is sugar and now and these sports products are great available options of simple sugars but there's also plenty of simple sugars yeah in the corner shop around the corner yeah um, which will do the job just as yeah. well I was about to say, Rob is, uh, when we do challenges, Rob is the croissant king. Is he? Loves yeah. <laughs> and he <laughs> brings options. So you have jam or you have ham and cheese or you've done a peanut butter one once. I don't I feel, I don't feel the entire session with this though. This is a, <laughs> these are interlude snacks. Thoughts on the, on the croissant, Abby? Pretty high fat. The jam, mm. jam, great. Nutella, though. I, I smother it with Nutella, some of them. Oh, even higher in fat. No, not the Nutella I buy. Don't worry. There's no nuts in there. It's all <laughs> sugar. This is where everyone differs, right? Some people have guts of steel. Like, if I, I couldn't have that, Rob, no chance. No chance. I'd be tapping out that session early and running to the bathroom. But other people can... You know, it comes down to what works for you. If you feel good eating those foods, crack on. I think another important message there as well is it changes. Mm. Um, I, I was known with it, um, for having a gut of steel. Like I could literally eat anything and take on, you know, around 90 grams of, of carb per hour and be absolutely fine. And, and about probably this time last year, it all changed. And my normal um, fueling strategy just would not work with me. I was throwing up. I was having a bad stomach. Um, for like days after the event and things. And um, I've had to figure it out this this year and, and basically chucked the book out the window and, and decided to start from scratch again. And, and I went back to what you said, Abby. I went back to, okay, 60 grams of carbohydrates based on glucose per hour and then build it in from there. And uh, it's been a really good reminder that just because it worked before, it doesn't mean it's going to work again. And you have to constantly trial your nutrition and maybe it means you know adding in some real food like just because you've always bought one product doesn't mean that's the one that you're always going to have to use and i think it is important to know what other foods are good because you might not be able to find a product that you can get your hands on like out here there's probably three main players in in the market but um you know it's nothing like if you live in the us or you live in the uk you can try probably 10 to 15 different sports products that uh that might work for you but out here you might not be able to find them so knowing the foods knowing what you need to aim for it's so important because you can't just say okay this worked last time and, it, and it'll work again or say you know okay rob does this so i'm going to do the same as well because it worked for him yeah loads of good points there well it's also it touches upon a thing that we've been dealing with quite a lot post like pandemic and with races coming back on is athletes just going to their you know, well-tested race plan that they did 18 months ago. But just like, you know, detraining of the rest of the body, the gut will detrain. If it's if you've not been using any carbohydrates in your training recently, you can't just turn up to race day and try and do what you did previously. It's, you've got to train that gut again, get it used to, um, what, you know, whatever you're trying to give it. And like you say, Tom, it might mean mixing it up. Um, what worked previously might not work now. Don't be afraid you, to eat real foods. What would you say is, uh, if somebody is going to start racing and they haven't raced in a while, what would you say is the, a good length of time to start training that gut back up? I would, I would say give yourself you know, more time than you need to be on the mm -hmm. safe side. I'd say somewhere between eight weeks, eight and six weeks. I wouldn't go shorter than six weeks if you've not been using carbs for a while. And that's classic with runners. You won't see a lot of runners typically use many carbohydrates during their training. We're terrible. Never. <laughs> Never, exactly. But cyclists, you often catch a cyclist out with a few gels in their pocket. Mm -hmm. And then that's, you know, there's evidence out there that shows that cyclists and runners, there's, there's no difference in their oxidation rate of carbohydrate. You know, we perceive cyclists to be able to tolerate so much more carb in theory, there's no reason why runners shouldn't be able to tolerate the same the same volume, but it comes down to a few reasons. And the big one is that runners just don't don't train with carbohydrates as frequently. They're more unaccustomed to it. And of course, running as a sport is a bit more 
you know, mechanically intense, it's higher impact, it's more jarring of the gut, which can make it trickier. Mm -hmm. But predominantly it's because runners just don't try and use carbs. And so when they do, it typically doesn't go as well. And so they need to dial it back versus cyclists who can ram them in no problem. We, um, we, most of our sessions in the summer, especially are very, very early morning. And so quite a lot of our athletes, I would say, would probably get up, have, have some water, maybe even a coffee, and then they'd go and they'd hit, it might be a track session, or it might be a tempo set. It might even be their long run, you know? Um, and I was the same. And then just, it must've been a good few months ago, whenever I started training or doubling up my training for a long ultra we did, I started having a banana with my coffee just prior to any really intense sessions because I knew I'd be so depleted at the end of it and it just it made me feel so much better during the session after the session and then sort of carrying over for the rest of the day leading into the next day just because I'd had if you like a topped up before the session mm-hmm. it was yeah. so easy to do so easy to do and like you say the, the effects the benefits are so obvious um but that's that's a classic early morning training. You often don't feel like eating beforehand, do you? No. Um, and for a lot of people, they can't eat close to that training. You know, it needs to be at least 60 minutes. For other people, it can be at least, you know, two hours beforehand. And so that means getting up, having to eat. And so it's completely understandable why people don't. But if you are approaching race day and your sessions are always going to be early morning, definitely, definitely worth thinking about and introducing for the reasons that you just touched upon Rob. Brilliant. I think that is a great place to end it. I actually hope people have taken some notes down on this one and, and can go back through and refer to some, if not, maybe just go and hit the replay button and, uh, and get your notepad and pen ready. But key takeaways, you've got to train nutrition as much as you train your exercise. Um, it's not a one size fits all uh, answer. And just because someone else works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And, uh, and if you're getting, you know, completely stuck with things, then pull it back to basics and, and try and figure it out again. Abby, you work for Precision Hydration, but you are now a fueling company, Precision Fueling. Are you yeah. going to get one brand name? Oh, this is the this question. Is we keep asking ourselves. At the minute, we understand that people know us as, as Precision Hydration and we didn't want to quickly change and you know we want to build some credibility in the fueling space first i think um your guess is as good as mine tom thankfully it's not my decision to make Um, i'll just do what i'm told (laughs) brilliant um and yeah abby thank you so much for coming on you've uh well an incredible resource of information which our listeners always love okay no you're welcome thank you for having me very enjoyable conversation We'll let you get back to the gloominess of Leicestershire. (laughs) Thanks. Awesome. Rob, any last questions? No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. You've, you've got your basket full. You're ready to hit order. I've just deleted the croissants off my list and it's all about the glucose fructose mix. Combinations, combinations. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Abby, thank you again. Thanks for listening, guys. We will be back next week.